Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. And the guest we have on today, his show, I wanted, I wanted so badly. I don't know. I didn't want it to be bad, but like I was so skeptical of it going in. I think a lot of people were. Um, but let me set the scene. The show we're talking about is Better Call Saul. It's a spinoff of Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad is a beloved television classic that people love, people watch, people devour, people watch over and over again. It was a show where I I loved it all the way through. I felt a little less excited about the last episode than some people. So, like, it it didn't, like, make me stop loving the show. But definitely it was like, I'm ready for Breaking Bad to be done. And then you find out there's going to be a spinoff and it's Better Call Saul. And it's about the lawyer Saul Goodman. And there's all these sort of complicated layers of he's some other person named Jimmy McGill. And, like, I was skeptical. And if you go back and read my very first review, like, it's a positive review, but it's a skeptical positive review but over the course of that first season and then the second and third seasons especially like I really grew to love this show to like really think of it as one of the best shows on television one of the best dramas on television and a show that digs into big questions about morality and why we are the way we are and psychology and philosophy in a way that is similar to the series that birthed it Breaking Bad but also very different they're companion series, I think, in the best possible way, which is that they're examining some of the same questions, but they look at it from perspectives that are just sort of diverse enough that you get a full view of these big questions about, like, why do we do good? Why do we do bad? What is doing good? What is doing bad? And the show Better Call Saul just finished its fourth season. I'm hoping it runs for a couple more, you know, maybe even more than that. But it was a really terrific season of television, and it ended in a finale that I'm not going to spoil for you, but really just, like, everything about it was so satisfying to me. And if you've watched it, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, what are you doing? So we have the showrunner and the co-creator, Peter Gould, on today. He worked on Breaking Bad, and then he, of course, co-created and showruns Better Call Saul. But we're going to be talking about just sort of the show in general. So if you've never seen it before, we're going to be talking about the show and some of these higher-level questions it digs into. And then at the end, we're going to get into a spoilery discussion of Season 4. So if you don't want to be spoiled, you can tune out at that point. We'll give you ample warning. But this is a really great discussion about one of TV's best shows. So even if you haven't seen it, stick around, because Peter's a really thoughtful guy, and I think you're going to have a really fun time listening to our thoughts about Better Call Saul. And then you should go watch it. Like, just go go pull it up and watch it. When, you know, what else do you have to do? Peter, thank you for joining us. No, it's a pleasure. So this season, we just completed season four on Monday. Uh, this episode's going out on Thursday, so that kind of is how the timeline works. So we just completed season four, and one of the things that I find interesting about the show is, like, you are increasingly having to write to what we know about these characters from Breaking Bad, the show you spun off from. And I'm wondering how you determine that, sort of that delicate balance of, Yes, we need to fill in this blank spot in their backstory versus this we, the audience can probably just figure out on its own. 
Boy, that's a that's a great quote. We that's you're talking about uh, one of the main things that we argue about. I don't know if argue about, but wrangle about in the writers' room. How important is it that we hit this point or that point? And uh, I think one of the the fun things about the show is the way you know we fill in some of the the questions that Breaking Bad raises. But I don't think that's the focus of the show. I think the show is really about these uh, these characters, Jimmy McGill and and Kim Wexler and Mike Herman Trout. And we try to make sure that everything that we put in the show has to do with their journeys and their progress and that we're not just throwing in Breaking Bad stuff for the fun of it. You know, you do, though, have to kind of – like, you can't just be like, this is a parallel universe where Breaking Bad never happened, you know? Like, do you – have you ever been – I don't want to say frustrated, but have you ever found yourself at a place where you were like – you know, we wanted to do something, but the original series contradicts it. Something like constantly, that. You know? yeah. Constantly, constantly. There are so many characters that we'd like to bring in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is it possible mm. that Saul meets uh, or that Jimmy meets this person or that? You know, Ted Beneke. Could, could, <laughs> could, could Jimmy meet Ted Beneke? Well, no, because mm-hmm. on Breaking Bad, there was a scene between. Jimmy and Ted, and it was very clear that they had never met before, Mm -hmm. although Jimmy actually saw and Ted. So it's a, um, yeah, constantly we're coming up with ideas that we get very excited about briefly, and then sometimes they get shot down. That happened on Breaking Bad, too. Mm -hmm. You know, we had, uh, just thinking back on Breaking Bad, we had a scene between Tio and and the cousins and, and the Gus Fring, and then later on, we decided we wanted to delve into the backstory between these characters. And so we said, is it possible, <laughs> is it possible that T.O. Uh, Hector had shot Max, uh, who is, of course, on Breaking Bad? Um, of course, if people haven't watched Breaking Bad, this is going to be completely <laughs> incomprehensible to them. But he was, had to, he was we, a character. We yeah. had to look at the, we because we were doing a scene that took place before the scene that we had already shot. We had to think about, is, is, is this possible? Mm-hmm. So sometimes we end up uh, assuming things about the show and then watching the scenes in the writer's room and finding out, wait, that's not true. Yeah. Uh, or it, in, in one case... There's uh, a bunch of dialogue that I actually wrote for for Breaking Bad that ended up getting, thank God, dropped. Mm. <laughs> uh, that established all sorts of things about uh, Saul's background. Mm. Oh well, you got lucky there. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But the question is, delete? Do we have to adhere to deleted scenes? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I I don't think so. I feel like if Frazier can get away with him saying his dad was dead on Cheers, and then his dad's very much alive on Frazier, and he's just like, yeah, I just lied about it because I was mad at him. I think you can get away with anything. Oh wow. You that's know? what it, well, that, that's a hell of a show. So if it's good <laughs> enough for Frazier, it's good enough for us. One of the things, like, how do you, how do you keep this all straight? Cause you don't have like Game of Thrones levels of mythology. Like you don't need to remember what happened 5,000 years ago in this universe. But I mean, maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe like the pre-Columbian, like whatever is important to the history of this show. But um, do you have like a, do you have like a whiteboard? Do you have like a, like a guy who remembers everything? Like how, how do you keep straight now that you have two shows that where the timeline has to sort of roughly match up? We have a lot of brilliant people with very flexible minds, uh, especially Ariel Levine, who's our, um, writer's assistant. And Ariel can, uh, she has an encyclopedic knowledge of the show and she can also call up, she has all the scripts for both shows. And so she can do these very fast searches looking for things. And uh, it's very rare that we have to wait for more than a couple of minutes Mm -hmm. uh, to, to try to see, you know, if we've mentioned something before, if we've mentioned 
how old Mike's son was when he died. Um, we can find that out pretty quickly. And it, it, is, it gets very confusing. I mean, the, now we're in a situation, it's like a rubric's cube. Um, it, it, we're in a situation where we've also established things it, in different timelines, mm-hmm. established things in the, during the timeline of Breaking Bad that actually take place on Better Call Saul. We have this gene storyline, which takes place after Breaking Bad, which is when uh, uh, Saul Goodman becomes Gene Takovic, mm-hmm. and he's, he's escaped to Omaha, Nebraska. And it's really hard to keep all these things straight. But I think one of the pleasures, uh, hopefully, of watching the show is to feel that the world of the show works, mm-hmm. that it has a consistency, and that we're not going to take back things, say things, and then take them back or, or change the rules suddenly. Mm-hmm. We do our damnedest to play by the rules that we've established already. And and so far we've been able to, but it gets really confusing. You know when Lost finally ended, somebody edited it so that it was in chronological order. And I hope somebody does that with the whole <laughs> saga. Because I think like like some of the stuff, like I believe that Better Call Saul would both be the first scene you saw in the in the Breaking Bad saga and the last scene, probably. I don't know. You know That might <laughs> but, very well be. <laughs> well, it's true right now. Yes, so, yeah. Um, one of the, I guess one of the things I wanted to sort of ask about is, I'm interested in the development process of the show, and you and I have talked about it before, but mm-hmm. it was long, it was strained. For a while, you guys kind of thought maybe it was a comedy, you know, and yet for as funny a character as Jimmy slash Saul can be, this show is, and I don't want to call it one of the saddest on TV because that's going to turn a whole bunch of people off, but there's a real weight to its tragedy that you won't find on a lot of other shows. So tell me about kind of finding what this show is going to be and then finding the tone. That's right. You know, let's let's not forget to mention that it's funny and action packed. It's not just <laughs> not just a profound slog. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, I hope. Um, there are a lot of great jokes. There are a lot of great action sequences. But yeah, like like when you walk away from a season of this show, you feel that weight. You know. You know, I, I think the key for us has been uh, to follow the story and to follow the really and to follow the characters. And to be as honest as we can about who, who these folks are and what they want at any particular moment and not try to shove them into things that we uh, – our preconceptions. And I will say that, you know, when we started, I think we used to say that, uh, you know, if Breaking Bad was uh, 80 percent drama and 20 percent comedy, this was going to be 80 percent comedy and 20 percent drama. Mm-hmm. Boy, did that turn out not to be true. <laughs> uh, you know, having said that, I, we have some secret weapons. And one of our secret weapons, not so secret really, is that Bob Odenkirk is one of the funniest people around. And the fact that Bob can switch from scenes that are actually kind of silly, mm-hmm. and I mean that in a good way, that are funny and light and and playful – and then he can go to a very dramatic scene, very abruptly. It's remarkable. And I don't think anybody else can do it quite the way Bob does because he has those sketch comedy chops, but it's he's not doing sketch on the show. He never is. He's always Jimmy, mm-hmm. but he can layer on top of Jimmy this sort of this this almost sketch comedy element. And I don't know how he does it. We write to it. And I think that's the other trick is that we uh, we try to write to uh, not just our ideas about the characters, but the characters as we've actually seen, seen them on the show. Mm-hmm. And we've learned so much about them. Now, having said that, going back to your 
I think what was your original question? Yeah. <laughs> the the no, original right. question was, you know, the original question was about how how the show was conceived. I think it was it faded from the beginning, just because Vince and I, and you know, we we're lucky enough to get a bunch of the other writers from Breaking Bad. There's uh, not a preponderance anymore, but there were a few at the beginning uh, who were on Breaking Bad. It's kind of inevitable that the chemistry between us and the universe that we were working in, it was going to have a tone of its own. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I think the DNA of both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is all wrapped up in the main character. And I think that's what makes especially Breaking Bad unusual. You see a lot of dramas which are conceived originally as ensembles. And Vince's idea for Breaking Bad was always that it would start out very much as Walt's story and then branch out and become an ensemble. Mm -hmm. And I think that everything that happened in Breaking Bad really grew out of his conception of the character of Walter White and the things that we learned about Walter White as we went. I think the same is true on this show, except on this show, of course, we have two characters. We have Jimmy McGill. Well, actually, there's way more than two, but but two characters who were, I would say, carry the DNA, at least at the start. It was Jimmy and and then, of course, Mike, played by the fabulous Jonathan Banks. You mentioned, I want to kind of go back to something you talked about, which is, you know, Bob Odenkirk has these sketch comedy chops. This cast and the cast for Breaking Bad are just full of people who are great at comedy, like uh, Ray Seahorn has done so much great comedy, uh, Michael McKeon, of course. Uh, even Patrick Fabian's done some really funny stuff over his career. What is it about putting people known for comedy into dramatic roles that you think works? Because this has been this has been a truism over time. Is that like people who are good at comedy can often be really great at drama too? I think it's as simple as that. I think we just said, I think that was always uh, Vince's theory on, on Breaking Bad was that if you can do comedy, you can probably do drama. And no one's, you know, better example than Bryan Cranston, uh, who went from Malcolm in the Middle to Breaking Bad. And I think it was a great creative leap. And it was also very courageous of Vince and also of Sony and AMC to, to cast Brian, but he's, you know, it's inarguably a fantastic actor and very funny. I just think that's been baked into our approach right from the beginning. I think there's, there's a magical thing that happens when you add comedy to drama because mm -hmm. the, the comedy makes the drama feel deeper and uh, drama makes the comedy funnier. Mm. And it's, we are not a comedy, uh, not in the sense of Veep. Mm -hmm. Our jokes are not those kinds of jokes. But I think the show is funny. Mm. And I think that a lot of it comes from the moving back and forth between the two tones. And uh, thank God it's worked so far. I just see so many TV dramas nowadays that don't have any levity. Um, and it was worse a couple of years ago. But but now, you know, I feel like we're coming out of it a little bit. And I, I think about like there was a time when I was having a huge fight with my wife, like one of the worst fights we've ever had. And I was cracking jokes like I was a character in a sitcom and like she was too. It's like I feel like there is that that thing that when we get into these dark places, like sometimes our most human response is to just try to be as funny as possible. Well, I think that's I think that's completely true. Mm. Uh, and uh I hope you guys are getting along better now. I mean, that was like 10 years ago okay, and we're good. still hanging out together. Oh, so. well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> the, yeah, the, uh, it's true. I mean, comedy, uh, laughter is part of life. And sometimes the only response you can have to the most disastrous things to smile and make a joke. And that, you know, we always see that in people who are under 
the worst circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously everybody's different. Every circumstance is different. But I agree. I think, I think uh, well, I always thought The Sopranos mm. was incredibly funny. It's hilarious. It's something yeah. that's not really, you know, The Wire, too. Mm -hmm. Also, I delayed for years before I watched The Wire. We, um, My wife and I only watched it the last couple of years. Because people said, well, this is this is the great work of dramatic art of yeah. the, the 21st century. And it is so entertaining and so funny. But this is a little ad for The Wire right here. You yeah. watch If you haven't watched it, you should. <laughs> I think that we TV critics have a tendency to, like, you know, adjust our ties and make everything sound, like, very serious. And, like, a lot of the time, the best dramas are also the best comedies and kind of vice versa. Like, I look at a show, like, I don't know if you watch this, The Good Place, and they – turn out plot twists like some of my favorite dramas in just like so many exciting ways like we have this weird dichotomy between the two in television that doesn't really need to exist sometimes i you know it's it's hard to write about things but i think we get mixed up between uh saying that something is serious and something is dour mm -hmm. uh and i to me the the literature and the movies that excite me the most have a mixture of tones. Right. And, uh, you know, so that's what we aim for. I think, yeah, I think there are things that have serious themes but have levity, you know, or yeah. not. And I think I think that's really smart what you said about the difference between serious and dour because, like, you can have a serious conversation, you know, full of jokes like we were talking about. But I want to sort of talk about um, you co-created this show with, with Mr. Gilligan, Vince Gilligan. And, you know, he's involved this season as well, but he's kind of stepped back now. And when you go in on any TV show, taking over as the showrunner is a daunting prospect. And I want to know what you learned from him that made you sort of moving forward on the show, made you feel, you know, comfortable, like you knew what you were doing, even as it's a job that nobody can ever know what they're doing. You know, I, I, I think I, I learned everything from Vince, uh, you know, working on Breaking Bad. He is was the greatest showrunner training program anybody could ask for because Vince, he's got a vision uh, to use that creaky term. He's got a very specific way of looking at things, but he is completely open to hearing about other ideas. And he ran the show and we run this one very much uh, for writer producers. The writers on this show go to set. They uh, The writers produce their own episodes to a great degree, although we have a wonderful producing staff too. The fun for me, the thing that I always wanted to do from probably before high school on, was just to be involved. I didn't know what I wanted to do in film. I just wanted to do everything. Mm -hmm. And the wonderful thing about this job is that you get to stick your nose into everybody's business. You get to play and to have fun and to experiment with, you know, the greatest cast, the greatest production designer, the uh, the greatest sound team, <laughs> cinematography. And it's that's the fun of it. It was incredibly daunting. And Vince Gilligan, I, I don't want to use any overused terms. He's a very unique guy, and, mm. and he is he is brilliant and also very generous. And uh, seeing him do the job, one of the things I realized is that you don't have to be an asshole mm. to do good work. Mm. Uh, and that was one of the things I think always worried me about getting into a job like that because I don't want to be an asshole. It's not something that comes easily to me. Mm -hmm. It's not in my it's not in my easy vocabulary. I'm sure I have been an asshole to many people, mm. but that it's not my self image anyway. And uh, Vince is somebody who is is very as I said, very generous and open at the same time as he's a terrific leader. And so getting to work 
with him on Breaking Bad was incredible. Of course, I started off on Breaking Bad. I had never been in a writer's room before. Wow. I'd only ever written by myself mm. or with a single writing partner. I'd never worked on a series before. I'd only worked on longer pieces. And uh, it was just wonderful. I just loved every bit of it. And then since we created Saul together and we ran it together, we were joined at the hip for mm -hmm. the first two seasons especially. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... You know, you just gain these things through osmosis or os – I don't even know how you say that. Osmosis. Is, osmosis. osmosis. Right. That's yeah. – there you go. Uh, you, you gain you gain a lot of that. And, of course, we put together uh, – and along with, you know, the producers like Melissa Bernstein put together just a wonderful team. And part of the, part of the trick to show running is to have an idea about where to go and have, have an idea about what the show is – but to also be open enough that other people can bring their own creativity to it. Mm -hmm. And that's how we run the writer's room. It's how we work with directors. We try to, we try to have a very specific idea of what the point of every scene is. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have ideas sometimes about the visuals of every scene. But how the director gets from point A to point B or from A to Z is, is something that we work together on. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, so it's, it's, I like to think... I don't know. It's a long-winded way of saying, I mean, look, I had insomnia, uh, <laughs> night sweats, uh, terrible nerves. Um, but also the fact is that Vince is around and, you know, if I need his input on something, he's very, very available for that. You can just text him. I can text him or call him <laughs> yeah. or uh, sometimes he's in the office. Yeah, yeah. Talking about that, what's a time when sort of early maybe in the show when you had kind of an idea of something you wanted and then somebody else came in and said, I think this would work. And you were like, yes, that's better. I know it happens a million times on every TV show, but like people are often thrown that that happens. Well, one of the best examples I can think of is uh, episode 208. Larissa Kondracki was the uh, director of that episode. We had as an opening a scene Wonderful scene that Tom Schnauz had written, a very visual scene, which was about one of these uh, ice cream trucks coming over the U.S. border. Mm -hmm. And it gets examined and taken apart and uh, nothing's found. And then it gets to the other side of the border and the driver gets out and recovers a gun. Mm -hmm. And you realize, oh, this is a guy who works for Hector Salamanca. And uh, Larissa Kondracki came in and she pitched to us, she said, what if this is, what if the whole sequence at the border is all one shot? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if she brought up uh, Touch of Evil, the Orson Welles film, but that was on, that was on our minds. And uh, I was a little bit nervous about it, but we said, you know, <laughs> it sounds pretty cool. Let's do it. And the wonderful thing about having a, a director like that with, with a, such a wonderful eye, such a strong directorial sense is that she inspires everyone who works on the show. And so we had the whole crew got very excited about doing this immense single take that mm. goes that goes over the Mexican border, that goes past all these trucks, and uh, you end up seeing inside the truck. It was a very complex shot that took an entire day to do. And also, you know, we had to add some digital trucks and whatnot and take some things away. But that's a perfect example of a director uh, having a great idea and topping what we had in the script. Mm -hmm. Things like that happen literally, it's wall to wall in the writer's room. Because when you asked the question, my first thought was something that happened like two hours ago that I can't mm -hmm. talk about because theoretically it's going to end up in season five. I don't want to do any, any you can spoil all. I don't want to do, five. I don't want to do any 14 month <laughs> premature spoilers, but you know, 
that's the thing about our creative collaboration is that you you venture something that's not quite finished sometimes. The Ur example that I always think of with this uh, is actually on Breaking Bad. Because Breaking Bad, we knew we had this character, Tortuga, mm-hmm. uh, who was going to be uh, decapitated. And uh, Vince said, how are we going to reveal this decapitation? And Vince said, you know, I have this, just this image of the head moving through tall grass. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else said, what if this uh, this head is on top of a tortoise that says Ola DEA on it? Mm-hmm. And we were all very excited. And then George Masteris, mm-hmm. uh, one of the other writers said, and then it blows up. And we all said, no, that's too much. Mm. Uh, but no, it was right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that's, exactly what, that's exactly what happened on the show. And it's a feeling of, uh, that's the thing I love about television is that you feel like you're on a team mm-hmm. and it's, everyone's working together. And it's, for a writer, it's a wonderful feeling because, as I said before, you get to have your say in, in all the different areas of filmmaking. As somebody who had sort of previously written by yourself, and writing is, you know, the stereotype is writing is a very solitary process, um, which it is to some degree. You, you always have to work with an editor of some sort. But for most writers, it is. You sit in a room and you type some words up. And it's very different in television. So, like, how quickly did you sort of adapt to enjoying working with a bunch of people? Immediately. I mean, right? it's, it's walked into the room. It was terrifying, actually. The first week, because I was not sure what was expected of me. Mm-hmm. And, and Vince walked in the first day, and he had the second episode of Breaking, because the first episode of Breaking Bad had already been yeah. written and shot. He had the first episode of the season already carded on a board. And Vince has this extremely precise handwriting and he had it laid out on this uh, this cork board, mm-hmm. and it was beautiful. There were some changes made after that, but it it all made perfect, lucid sense, and it was exciting. Mm-hmm. It was it was a really thrilling episode. It had great act outs, had great character pieces and dialogue and everything. It was all there on that board. And my first thought was, oh, am I gonna, he's going to send me home for the weekend and I'm supposed to come <laughs> back with that. Uh, and I didn't understand that we were all going to work on these things together. Mm-hmm. And once I understood that, uh, it was just a blast. I think the part that wasn't a blast at first was writing the actual scripts, which because the other scripts were so, I want to say fucking. <laughs> no, were, you can. You can say They were swear. so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember... Uh, reading and you know the pilot of Breaking Bad is a great great episode. But then I remember reading Vince wrote the first three episodes himself, mm-hmm. and reading those scripts, you just couldn't put them down. And then Patty Lynn wrote the next one after that, and then George Masteris, who is just an incredible writer, wrote that episode that introduced Tuco Salamanca. And I I felt like there was this train coming down the tracks. <laughs> and also as time goes on, one of the things that happens in television is the later you are in the lineup, the less time you have to write the script. Right. So early on, it's just the way it works. You end up with less and less. So I kept on looking at the calendar and how many days I was going to have to write my first script. And I, you know, I started chewing my nails a little bit. So when I turned it in and Vince was happy with it and it ended up being the, the season ender for the first season, which was not the intention, which is another story altogether. Uh, that was a real thrill and it, it was, was very affirming. And boy, I'll tell you, as a screenwriter, nothing beats writing something on Tuesday mm-hmm. and having them shoot it on Monday 
Oh, you know, sure. just to, and to get to see Brian Cranston and Dean Norris uh, do a scene, mm. perform a scene that you've written, mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's a thrill. I uh, I heard once uh, Vince gave a talk or something, and he was saying that early in the show, you know you are the only one who has the idea of the show in your head and you kind of need to teach all the writers how to do it. And then gradually that becomes the rubric everybody operates under. And as new writers come in, they can be taught, you know, whatever. I'm wondering what on Better Call Saul, like what is the thing that like, if I was going to join your writer's room, I might think, okay, this is how they write the show that like is sort of the the opposite of that. Like what's a, like what's a rule of writing Better Call Saul that maybe you haven't even had to articulate? Oh, what a great question. I think the thing that would surprise you mm-hmm. about the writer's room was how little time we spend thinking up cool stuff mm. and how much time we spend trying to understand what the hell is going on with the characters and how right. to express it. Mm-hmm. That's the big hurdle. And, you know, right now, uh, this is airing, this podcast is airing after our season <laughs> finale. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we're talking about a lot is is what's going on in Kim Wexler's head. Mm-hmm. How does she interpret what just happened at the end of uh, at the end of episode four ten? And we thought we knew when we were, by the way when we wrote the episode we thought we knew, mm-hmm. but then you always go back and then reexamine it. You know, it's funny. It's so much of it is trying to understand people and to relate it to your own experience. And you'd be surprised at how much you know we you know, we were just you were just talking about your fight with your wife. Mm-hmm how much we end up talking about things like that and think about things in our own lives and, you know, how we feel attached or how we think Jimmy feels attached and, and what his reaction is to her. And it's it's a lot of that. It's a surprising amount of, of just trying to understand the psychology, not in some big, broad sense, although there's that too, but just in a moment to moment, what is she thinking right this second? Mm-hmm. What is he thinking right this second? And then once you know that, then you start saying, so what does he do? Mm-hmm. And Or if he thinks this is the way forward, what's his plan? What's going to happen? And those discussions are actually go a lot faster usually than the psychology problems. Usually if we don't, if we get stuck, it's usually because we don't understand the people fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, that would be, I know that's, that sounds kind of airy fairy, but that is, that is the fundamental of it. And the other thing is the most useful thing in the writer's room for us often is just somebody coming up with some idea out of left field, especially if it's based on something that's already happened on the show. Yeah. In other words, it's fun to talk about. I'd love to see this happen. Mm-hmm. There are scenes that I pitch every season uh, between especially Mike and Mike and Jimmy. Mm-hmm. There are these elaborate sequences. I'll say, and this happens, and that happens, and this happens, and that happens. And then we'll, we'll smile about that, or people will smile and nod, mm-hmm. you know, respectfully or with forbearance and then we'll get back to the real the real nitty-gritty which is how to get from point a to point b and what is what is that the greatest thing is when somebody says you know well what i always wondered i mean i think the big breakthrough on our on this particular show was when we said to ourselves well we know what chuck is to jimmy mm-hmm. we know what it's like being uh, chuck's brother cuz chuck is kind of overwhelming and he's brilliant and mm-hmm. he makes jimmy feel small but jimmy also feels like he wants to take care of chuck and we we understood all those things very very quickly but then when we saw michael mckinn playing the part we said wait a minute what does what does it feel like to be chuck and what does he think of jimmy because we didn't know we didn't know 
We didn't know when we started the show that Chuck had sandbagged Jimmy's career. Hmm. We didn't know that. It was there in the pilot. If you look at it now, it seems really, to me, it seems very clear. Hmm. But we didn't understand it well enough. And so a lot of what we do is going back and somebody saying, you know, I wondered what, you know, what was happening in so-and-so's head when he or she did that. And Hmm. sometimes it'll be, you know, a character will have done something and maybe it was a shortcut for us. And we'll say, well, why? Why? Hmm. Yeah. Why? And those are uh, those are all the great questions. Mm. You know, TV in some ways has kind of spoiled me when I go see movies because um, I saw the new A Star Is Born, and I really want like I was like I want to see every step of her career, and I was like that would take forty five <laughs> hours. Like they need to skip over the stuff that you. But on TV, you don't have to. But on Better Call Saul, obviously, you do a lot of that process stuff, a lot of that revealing the character slowly, but also you do take these leaps sometimes. You do jump forward in time. How do you decide when something can sort of be set off to the side? We don't need to see that. And on when it's going to be like deeply revealing of character. I think it's especially if we've seen it already. Mm -hmm. If we've seen something happen already, we try to shorthand it the second time around. If If you've experienced it once, and we always ask ourselves, how is this time different? Mm-hmm. You know, if Jimmy is scamming, if Jimmy and Kim are scamming, why are we doing this again? What What is different here? Why does this move things forward? Mm-hmm. And hopefully we come up with answers that make sense to the audience. <laughs> but that's that we think about that. We think about that a lot. And, we, you know, also what's interesting to us and what hasn't been done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we started the show, uh, Vince and I were both really worried about doing a legal show mm-hmm. because, you know, we're not lawyers. Plus... There are so many great legal shows written by people who have law backgrounds yeah. uh, and so many wonderful courtroom scenes. And the way we kind of placated ourselves was to say, well, it's not a law show. It's a crime show. Mm-hmm. But it is it is a law show too sometimes. So one of the things that we try to do is to find the parts of the law that you're not seeing as much mm-hmm. of. You know, we've, see, we've all seen a lot of uh, wonderful courtroom summations. But the truth is, as we did – our big research trip to downtown LA and we, we all sat in court for, I, I sat in court for probably a pretty much a week and yeah. a lot of the writer's room, we all sat in for a couple of days, I think. Uh, what you find is that, you know, most of the time in court, nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of the uh, actual transactions happen out of the courtroom or out of sight or backstage. And we wanted to show that part. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that helps us when we think about process, that's what we think about. And we also think about what does it mean to this? What does it mean to this character? Yeah. The working theory is that if something's very, very important to the character, then it can be very, very important to the audience if we dramatize it right. Right. Uh, and I think that helps us because it keeps us from chasing stakes. You know, mm. this is one of the things that you hear from uh, sometimes notes that people give is, where are the stakes? Mm. We want stakes. And if you're constantly elevate, you're raising the stakes, you, you know, you quickly get everything has to be life or death. Yeah. You know, we have to, it has to be the hero's life or death. Oh, that's not enough. It's got to be the hero's whole family. No, that's not enough. It's going to be the country. It's going to be the world. And you keep topping yourself until it, it loses humanity. It loses our ability to really get under the skin of the character. So I'll tell you, that's one of the things that gratifies me the most is that I hear more about Kim Wexler, really, than any other characters. And what she has at stake is not life or death. It's her career that she's worked so damn hard for and is so important to her. And I think it might prove the point because 
that's an example of operating with stakes that are just very important to the person. Mm -hmm. But you won't like shoot down that maybe Kim has to defuse a nuclear bomb in season five. Mm. Like that could be a, a really great. I'm looking. For I'm looking. Well, I'm looking. Well, you know, we do have a very. I haven't talked. I mean, we haven't talked about it, but a very kinetic side of the show with yeah. a lot of action. Mm -hmm. and, and you do wonder what will happen if some of the characters yeah. who don't live in that world get involved in that world. Oh no. Um, no, I, so we're going to head into the spoilery discussion soon. Uh, so if you're not wanting to hear that, uh, you know, turn this off in five minutes or so. There should be but, a sound effect. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a clearer warning. One of the things that's interesting about this season is you have a lot of characters in your show, but you use some of them very sparingly. And I'm wondering, um, you know, when it comes to somebody like Howard, who doesn't necessarily overlap with everybody all of the time, or Nacho, who doesn't overlap with everybody all the time, how do you sort of decide we're going to work this person in in this way, you know? That's what a great question. You know, the truth is that if we had our way, we'd have a lot more, mm. uh, a lot more Howard Hamlin, a lot more Nacho Varga. You know, it's, it's really because we follow the story, the story of, uh, of Jimmy and Mike and Kim. You know, and to some extent, it is the story of Howard Nacho. And uh, certainly Patrick Fabian and Michael Mando are just powerhouse actors. Uh, and they, they can do anything that we can dream up for them. But it's, it's you know, we want to keep some focus to the show. I think that's one of the reasons why the show works. So it's, it's, it's always a balancing act. Mm -hmm. uh, in television, sometimes you can get into the situation where there's an obligation uh, for whatever reason that we have to have a scene with each character in each episode. So it always becomes sort of a round robin. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think, is, uh, is it's just not going to work for this show. Uh, the truth is that we hope... We give – I think you tweeted this. Mm, I did. <laughs> I think you tweeted this. Wait a minute. We hope we give them good, juicy, challenging material that's meaningful to the characters and hopefully the actors too and to the audience when they do have a scene. So it's a balance. Uh, it's, it's, it's not easy because also the other thing that happens is that you have this – great feeling of affection for these actors and you want to you know I, I always wanting to give give these these actors something great to do and a good reason to be in Albuquerque <laughs> you know it's a, every once in a while you know there's a, you know producers will say you know can we tell this actor that they won't be needed you know for x episode or y episode and and it's it's great for the actor to know that because they you know they can take another job or 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 do something else with their time. But I hate it, like mm -hmm. poison. If I had my will, you know, it's, I guess the, the alternative is to have like 95-minute episodes. Uh, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't seem to work for us. Right, right. Typically, we end every episode. We're going to do this in the middle so people who are tuning out for the spoilers can hear it. We end every episode by asking some of our guests some of the same questions. I'm going to ask you one of those, and then we'll go to the spoilers. So when you finish answering this question, we'll get to spoilers. And it's a very off-the-wall question for you. I'm excited to see how you answer it, which is, it's the month of Halloween. What is the greatest costume you've ever worn, either for Halloween or for some other purpose, like you were in a stage show in college? I don't know. Ah, Are you not a costume person? I guess not. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I think when I was a kid, I was... Well, I you know, when I was a kid, I was a robot. That was probably my best, my best costume. Was, mm -hmm. uh, it took a... 
uh, I grew up in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you couldn't really trick or treat mm-hmm. at, the, at the time. New York is now much more kid friendly. Yeah. At the time that I grew up, it was basically, it was Mad Men. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A little after that, but it was, you know, Manhattan was for, was for adults and kids were barely suffered. So you would go to a friend's apartment and, and uh, they would maybe make an arrangement with a, a neighbor so you could you could go knock mm-hmm. on a couple of doors. And I took a large box mm. that was uh, – and I drew a robot on it and um, and I had a light that blinked that I could push a button with and it was uh, – I thought it was pretty slick at the time. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you should uh, dig it out and wear it again. Yeah. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. Hey, folks, let's listen to a message from our friends at the Eater podcast, Start to Sale. Hi, this is Aaron Patinkin, CEO of Ovenly. And I'm Natasha Case, CEO of Cool House. And, and together, together, we're the, the co-hosts of Start, Start to, to Sale. Sale. We talk to entrepreneurs about what it takes to build a business from launch to exit. We'll really talk about the experience in the trenches, the most valuable lessons learned to get them out of there. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our show today. And thanks to Smartwater for being the founding sponsor of Start to Sale. So we're doing the spoilers now. We're talking about spoilers. Tune out if you haven't seen season four and don't want to be spoiled. Bye, everybody. Uh, I want to start with the very end of the finale, which is, you know, uh, Jimmy saying he's going to go practice law and under another name. I wonder what name it could be. Uh, and you end on Kim. You don't, you don't end on his decision. You end on her standing there all alone, sort of like forlorn is the word I want to use, but maybe that's the wrong word to use. Tell me about or finally arriving at that moment of, okay, here comes Saul Goodman lawyer. I think Kim is forlorn. I think she's shaken. Uh, I think she's, for us, the big moment in uh, maybe the biggest moment in that episode, I don't know. One of the biggest moments is that the scene that comes right before that, which is Jimmy's statement to the uh, yes the bar. And he Jimmy gets very emotional. Mm-hmm. He t- makes a speech, which I find very sincere and real and uh, about his brother mm-hmm. in a way that he's never spoken about Chuck ever. And the board, there's one of the board members who gets teary-eyed. And Kim, unbeknownst to Jimmy, because she's sitting behind him, Kim also gets gets teary-eyed. She gets misty-eyed. And uh, he gets choked up and he has, to, he has to end the speech. And then she finds out, and I think in that moment, at least for me, Kim feels really close to Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And they've had a lot of trouble lately. There's been, they had an argument in the previous episode that was just lacerating. It was it was a really tough one. It was one where uh, a lot of things that had gone unsaid get said. And in this moment, in the bar meeting, I think she feels that he's made maybe some kind of breakthrough or at least that he's back to the Jimmy she fell in love with. Mm-hmm. And then they leave the bar 
uh, and uh, he reveals to her that it was an act. This is what he tells her. He says it was all an act. I saw the Matrix. I, you know, I made. <laughs> did you see that idiot crying? Mm-hmm. And of course, she was crying too. So he 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 deceived the board. At least this is the way it looks. He deceived the board, and he deceived her too. And then she immediately finds out. Wait a minute. He's gonna. He's he's calling the clerk, honey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he's he's going to do business under another name. And it feels like, I think to her, uh, like he's made some kind of shift that she doesn't quite understand. And I almost feel like she's got a premonition. Mm-hmm. And of course, anybody who's watched Breaking Bad has a premonition too. But I, and I don't think she knows any, I don't think there's anything extra diegetic about it. But I think she she feels, she has the sense that something big has changed. In him, and that was that was a moment that we were working our way up to for quite a while. It didn't become clear to us that that was where we were going until pretty much mid mid season. But the more we talked about it, the more it felt um, like that was the right moment for him to seem to deal mm-hmm. with with his feelings about Chuck. Having said that, I don't know that he's he, he says it's all an act. I I don't know if I believe him. Yeah, uh, he, he, Jimmy has learned to use real emotion uh, to his own nefarious ends, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know after all that's that's what acting is, isn't it? He's a he's a great actor. Like he's drawing. I think he's drawing on something real. Jimmy is yeah. Jimmy is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Especially it's so inter- It's so f- much fun in the episode that we start off in the. Uh, in, in Act One, in the graveyard over Chuck's grave, and he literally says "boo hoo," uh, and he's he's. I think that seems very funny. It <laughs> yeah. is very dark and very funny. Uh, and Bob is is hilarious because he's he's doing a put on of grief, but he seems like he's discovered a new ability inside mm-hmm. himself as this as this episode goes on. That's how it looks to me. And uh, boy, I, I think uh, you got to hand it to Bob. Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn and uh, Adam Bernstein, who directed the episode, and of course uh, my my uh, co-writer uh, Tom Schnauz, who just just knocked this one out of the park. Yeah, yeah. I got to say, he got me. Jimmy got me. Like Good. I really thought that was sincere. Like I was like, I, I, you know, I know he has to become Saul at some point, but we got five more years of Jimmy just <laughs> trying to be good and failing. Well, oh. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, the other thing that we tried to do is to help you th- think because there is some rea- real emotion he's having in the episode. He breaks down by himself in the car. Yeah, and so you know. Something's going on with this guy, mm-hmm. and uh, I think his there's there's room for argument over over what's going on with Jimmy McGill. Mm-hmm. This season really established Saul Goodman as a performance in some ways, and I think that's a really interesting direction to take the character. Tell me a little bit about like arriving at that idea of him being a performance layered on a real person. I, that's I love I love the way you put that. I think that's absolutely true. We can't help but think about this show sometimes in uh, relation to Breaking Bad mm-hmm. and to – in Breaking Bad, so much of what you know Heisenberg was seemed to be Walt feeling like a badass. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Saul Goodman is so distant from Jimmy McGill still in some ways that he feels like he must be um, 
a character who is devised. Mm. And in fact, you know, the first time we meet Saul back in Breaking Bad, he says, you know, the real name's McGill. I just do the Jew thing because all the homeboys, well, anyway, he said a whole, he has a whole, he has a whole rap about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, he's basically saying, he's pulling the mask aside and saying, I, this, this isn't who I really am. Mm-hmm. As I was saying earlier, <laughs> like a lot of these things, the answers are often tucked inside episodes and writing that we've already done that maybe we haven't looked at carefully enough. Right. So it, it's, it's, it is, he is, I think Saul Goodman is a uh, is a performance. Bob likes to say Saul Goodman is a um, a punk rock choice, hmm. uh, which I think has a lot of validity to it. And this season was really tough because, of, I think for Bob and for us, because we made the choice that Jimmy didn't fully understand himself, hmm. and Jimmy acts out quite a few times in ways that only make real sense if you think, well, this guy has has things going on underneath the surface that maybe he doesn't fully understand himself. Mm-hmm. And that was very tricky. Mm-hmm. That was very tricky because uh, I think it was tough for all of us to understand understand fully what was going on with Jimmy. And I think we uh, uh, hopefully, uh, I think I think he got more complicated this season, yeah. really, is what happened. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he had to because only a complicated person would devise this crazy ass character he becomes. Yeah, yeah. We know what happens to Jimmy to some degree. We don't know everything, but we know he ends up Saul Goodman and he goes off and lives in Omaha now, presumably. We know what happens to Mike. We know what happens to some of these characters. The big question hanging over the show is what happens to Kim? And I know you leave room for improvisation, but like, do you have in the, a conversation about like kind of senses of different ending she could have. Oh, absolutely. We we talk about it all the time. I mean, when I say that we it's it's hard to explain if you're not there because mm-hmm. there is I'd say it's improvised moment to moment which is true some somewhat. But we spend a lot of time talking about well, what where's what's our end game here? How's that where does this go? And we have a lot of ideas, but I think the trick is that we're always willing to throw the ideas out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're not going to adhere to something just because we had an idea two years ago and we haven't earned it or the character's not ready to go there. So I, it's, you can't lay anything down for sure until you get there. But we definitely have a lot of, a lot of uh, very emotional and interesting uh, ideas about what's going to happen with Kim. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, her fate, it's a weird thing to say about a fictional character to some extent, her fate is in her own hands. Yeah. I, I had an argument with a friend who's certain that she's going to just completely destroy her career through the things she, the choices she's making. I was like, no, that's the person that Saul tells Francesca about in episode five. I just know it because <laughs> there's a flash forward in that episode. Um, the, the Mike corner of the show is it's not catching up to Breaking Bad. You still have like four years, I think, in the timeline before Breaking Bad starts. Um, but it is like putting things in place for Breaking Bad more overtly than I think the Jimmy corner of the show is. Tell me about approaching writing that and how you sort of decided where to end it in the finale with the uh, the final, it's, it feels weird to call it a showdown, but the final showdown with Werner. Oh, yeah. We started the show with a question. I don't think we knew exactly how we were stating it, but the very first episode of uh, Better Call Saul states a two-pronged question. One is, you know, how does this guy who's Jimmy McGill mm-hmm. become Saul Goodman? But it also, the question is, well, 
why, first of all, is why German trout in a, in a booth, <laughs> yeah. in a parking booth. But then as the season goes on, you start understanding who Mike is and, and why he's in Albuquerque and what he's, what he's all about. How does that guy become the right-hand man to a drug lord? Mm-hmm. How does he become Gus Fring's button man? It's and it's it's not as extreme as as Jimmy because he doesn't put on a new identity and a new voice and a new way of speaking and moving it, but he in a completely different world. But he is a former cop who has we know he has killed for for revenge, and we know he was he's been in war and we know he's he's taken money, uh, he's been on the take, but he still has a moral code. Mm-hmm. He still uh, sees the results of his actions pretty damn clearly mm. and takes responsibility for them, which is unusual uh, in this world and on this show. So how does he end up working with Gustavo Fring? And what does Fring need him for? And how does that work? And that is what, like with the Jimmy side of the story, that is the problem we've set out for ourselves. And this season we found out he seemed to have a rejection. He's, mm. He seemed to feel that he couldn't lead uh, a civilian life hmm. in some ways. And he, he ends up working uh, with Gus, but what he's doing with Gu- for Gus is suited to his unique talents hmm. because this is a guy who is brilliant at uh, deception and detection. And he's not just a, a, a hired killer. Gus has plenty of hired killers. Uh, and so the question became, you know, we're still, we're still trying to figure this out, this question, but he makes a decisive move this season because he does, you know, he does kill this guy, Werner Ziegler, who is uh, not blameless, mm-hmm. is, like they say, he's in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he is a, uh, for all that, he's a fairly decent guy and somebody Mike likes. And yet the situation, and I think if you asked Mike, he would say, Mike would say he created the situation. And it's just Mike's fault. Mike takes responsibility for the situation and... Uh, in some ways, it's almost a mercy killing mm. uh, because uh, he is, by killing Werner, he's saving Werner's, the life of Werner's uh, spouse. So it, it takes him a decisive step forward. And, you know, we had a lot of fun with the um, the Super Lab mm-hmm. and with, uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by how you could possibly build a, a <laughs> hidden structure like this. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, and you know, may, I may be a lunatic, but it, it, I'm fascinated by things like that. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I would watch the James Bond movies, and you'd see oh, yeah. those amazing Ken Adams sets, and you'd say, "Well, how did how did <laughs> how did Blofeld hollow out a volcano? And who are all those guys who are working there?" Yeah, and I, I wanted to know how that happened, and that, that's one of the things that we're exploring. I uh, I once worked at a newspaper job in the town where they're carving the Crazy Horse National Monument, which is a mountain they're blowing up to make it like Mount Rushmore. And like, I just was fascinated with like that whole process. I'm like, could you build like a house inside if you really wanted to? So, <laughs> I love I it. Get, I get where you're coming from. I love it. Um, Lalo kind of comes in the last few episodes and is really establishes his presence. Do you see him as a really important force going forward in the show? Wow. I, it, Lalo played by Tony Dalton. He's amazing. It, yeah. He just, mm-hmm. he comes in like a hurricane mm-hmm. and he seems to, boy, Tony has... Uh, such chemistry with Michael Mando, mm. and uh, he has such chemistry with uh, with with all anybody he anybody he encounters. Uh, I think um, 
I think he's going to play a significant role in how all this works out. And of course, when we first met Saul Goodman way back in Breaking Bad, he was terrified Mm -hmm. of somebody named Lalo. And now we've met him, and I think you see why he'd be terrified of him. So uh, one of the things that I'm I'm hoping for, uh, that I'm hoping we can achieve, is that uh, his path is going to cross with that of Saul Goodman. Mm. How do you think about using Gus? Because I always want more Gus. And I realize you don't want to like kill that character's, the character's vibe is kind of mysterious, but like I, I especially want more of Gus hanging out with Mike, you know, that sort of thing. So how do you think about approaching, we got this character, there's a lot of mystery around him. We want to preserve some of it, but we want to also use him, you know? I, I, I couldn't agree. I love Giancarlo Esposito. You know, you just watch this guy who couldn't be more different from his character. It's, it's kind of miraculous to see how lively and funny and human and sensitive Giancarlo is. He is a real artist. And then to see him uh, become Gus Fring in the blink of an eye, is it's sort of a magic trick. Uh, he is he is a remarkable actor. It's a great character. We you, you, you put your finger on one thing that we always think about is how much do you want to know about Gus's background and his inner life? And we've had a, we have a lot of ideas about that. And there have been hints throughout the show. But the question is, do you, you know, is it exciting? Is it the right thing to do to fill in mm-hmm. all those hints? And mm-hmm. I I don't know the answer. It's one of those things that we play by ear. Mm-hmm. We learned more about him this season. We learned more about how important Hector is to him and the things he's willing to do to keep Hector under his thumb. Mm-hmm. And we learned, you know, he tells that that great story in an episode uh, six that Jenny Hutchinson wrote about, you know, about his childhood, which sounds pretty bleak. Mm. Um, he is a fascinating actor. I want to see more of him. You know, it's an embarrassment of riches on this show. It's an embarrassment of riches of characters and, and of performers. He is, but I, I will say Giancarlo is one of my favorites. And and I just love working with him. Frankly, when I'm uh, directing, uh, he's, I just love directing him. Yeah. He's so much fun to work with on the set. So mm. I, I'm all I can say is I think I'm going to direct this coming season, and I'm sure hoping it works out. I get a bunch of Gus Fring scenes. Uh, maybe he drives across town. There's like a house. He goes in the house. We've never seen the house before. There's a live studio audience in there and like six precocious orphans, and it turns out he's also go. like the dad in a multi-camera. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are we writing this down? <laughs> uh, I do want to ask. We're, we're coming into the end here, but I do want to ask – Breaking Bad ran five seasons. You're coming up on season five. Do you have a sense of? Obviously, you could just run the show forever as as you know. Saul takes case of the week. B. <laughs> I, I would watch it. I would watch it. But do you have a sense of like we are? God bless you. We are approaching some sort of end game. I, yeah, I think it's the similarity with Breaking Bad. I think is that this is a story with a beginning, a middle, mm-hmm. and an end. And I think we're probably closer to the end than to the beginning. It's a different kind of story because I always go back to that saying that I heard when I was a kid, which where, where there's life, there's hope. Mm-hmm. And we know that Jimmy, Saul, Gene lives. And so I, I want to know, you know, what is the end of this man's story? And I don't know. I don't think the end of the story is Walter White walking in and his whole world falling apart. Mm-hmm. There seems to be more to it than that. So I I, I think um, we'll, we'll have to see. I'd like to see more of Gene Takovic, I'll, I'll tell you that. And, you know, as, of course, Breaking Bad ran, what, 62 episodes. Mm-hmm. We just uh, We just premiered our 40th 
It would be great. I mean, boy, it would be wonderful to have this box set. And, you know, you turn it one way, and I'm just talking about like a Blu-ray. You turn it one way, and it's the RV from Breaking Bad, and then you flip it around, and it's the esteem. <laughs> it's Jimmy's esteem from Better Call Saul. And, you know, we have we have this row. And, you know, this is actually an image. Boy, I you know, I just realized where I – where I had this image before. I had this image, Brian and I, Brian Cranston and I were in, in his trailer once. And I said, w- wouldn't it be great if we can finish this story and you could have a row mm-hmm. of DVDs and you know the first one was the, the the pilot of Breaking Bad in the end. And we did it. And mm-hmm. then Vince and Brian, all of us did it together, but led by Vince, of course. It would be wonderful if this show too had a beginning, a middle, and, and God willing, a satisfying ending and that it has a relationship to this other show. I, it seems very unusual to me. It's mm-hmm. a, um, I mean, I guess maybe it's not as unusual as I think because people talk about extended universes. But I don't really think of this as an extended universe. I think of this as these as stories yeah. uh, about very specific characters. I don't really think of it as a universe. Maybe it is. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I think that would be fun. I think that would be great. So, I mean, my hope would be that we run roughly – the same length as Breaking Bad. I, I wouldn't want to. The one thing I don't wouldn't want to do is to tread water mm-hmm. or to to feel that we've overstayed our welcome. Sure. And finally, I interviewed you and Vince before season one. I went back and reread it, and I asked you. So I sort of had thought of Breaking Bad as a show about a man everybody assumed was good, who deep down was not that good. And I sort of thought about this show for a long time as a man everybody assumed was bad, who deep down was not that bad. You know, he had a really good side to him. Now that we're at the end of season four, now that we've seen all this water under the bridge, would you say that, because at the time you thought my assessment was was pretty accurate, but would you say that's still accurate or is, has, has all of, is Jimmy sort of selling himself out in some ways? You know, I think, I think everybody has potential to go any which way. I think it, maybe it's a mechanistic way of looking at things, but I think of decisions, the choices people make. It's the it's the difference you make in the world that says whether you're good or bad. I mean, I know there are other ways to look at it. There are other ways, there are religious ways to say that, you know, what's good or bad is, is how you feel inside or relationship to, to the eternal. And those are obviously legitimate ways. But as a dramatist, uh, it's, <laughs> oh, that's too pretentious. <laughs> as, a, as a television writer, uh, I, I like to think of it as 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 this the decisions that people make, and and you add up the decisions, and that's who you are, and that's a very uncomfortable way to look at it sometimes because it means that we have to stand behind the things that we've done in life or the things that we haven't done. Mm. Um, but I I have to say I think it's a I think it's a productive way to think about it, and it's also part of the fun of. Uh, Part of the fun of fiction and of of narrative fiction is you get to experience different kinds of lives and you kind of imagine what would my life be like if I had made these decisions or if I was in this person's shoes. Uh, And it's, I think that's the, you know, it's the glory of being human is that you can, you can project yourself into someone else. And uh, so that's, that's, those are the things that I think about more than, is the essence of the person good or bad. If Walter White had made the decision to stop cooking meth mm-hmm. um, after that first adventure when he made all that money, uh, maybe you'd say, well, was he a good, you know, he might have been a much better person. He had a lot of opportunities to change his ways. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, I think a lot 
in terms of, uh, I think we all do in the writers room, thinking a lot in terms of, you know, character tests, which is, you know, you always hope that you don't have too many of those in your life because you you don't want to flunk them. <laughs> well, the show is Better Call Saul. It's on AMC. Older seasons are on Netflix. If you're not watching it, you should be. Peter Gold, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Todd. If you've been following this podcast from episode one, you'll notice that I've been slowly descending into depraved immorality, and that's because I'm the host and executive producer of the show. Todd Vanderwerf, producer of this show, is Bridget Armstrong. Our editor is Griffin Tanner. The executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich, and our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and our studio this week are thanks to the Rebel Talk Network, and our recording engineer was William Broughton. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you take a look at fine podcasts. It helps us get the message out about the show, helps us get great guests. You can email me, Todd, at Vox.com. You can email the show, ityi.podcast at Vox.com. And you can tweet at me at TVOTI to vote. We're going to be back next week with another guest from the world of arts and entertainment, media and culture. I'll spoil you. It's Yardley Smith. She's the voice of Lisa Simpson. It's a lot of fun. I think you're going to like it. But until then, remember, for all your podcasting needs, better call Todd. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all, really. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste.